0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 25th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name is Robert. I too am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. and, And I get the privilege this morning of leading us in our time in God's Word together. So if you've got your Bibles... Go ahead and open them up to the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. We've been there for a little while now, off and on through the summer. Now officially, I guess, into the fall. We're going to pick back up in chapter 3, but first I'm going to pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the privilege that we have to be together to hear from your word And so we ask this morning that you would do what only you could do, that your Holy Spirit working together through your word would continue to change the desires and the delights of our heart, that our enjoyment of you and your grace would deepen, that our confidence in your promises would strengthen, and that we would be confident and encouraged and courageous enough to labor together for each other's joy we ask that you would do that this morning in Jesus' good name. Amen. In uh, November 2019, so not too long ago, uh, my son and I got on a plane headed to Japan. And we were headed to Japan to be a part of a every other year biannual church planting conference in Japan. You know, as part of our commitment here at the church to support those who are going after unreached, unengaged peoples, you often don't think about Japan, but Japan, uh, self-professed, is half of 1% of the total population professes to be followers of Jesus. Half of 1%. So we have these opportunities every other year to go, and I get to speak with church planters, to teach with church planters, to just encourage those laboring in a very hard area. And the last couple times, my son gets to be part of the logistics team at the conference and helping put it on. So we jumped on the plane. We headed over, and it is a long way away. Um, It it literally is on the other side of the world. Uh, And so after being on the plane for, I don't know, like 17 hours, I don't remember how long it was at that point, you know, we got off, and it takes like 30 minutes to get off the plane. Just to get off the plane down the concourse and so we're making our way down making sure we have all of our our customs declarations straight everything in order so we can just make our way through get to a train get to a hotel get to a bed Um, i turn my phone on it's been off the whole time and you know what it's like when your phone's been off for a while all those messages you know come flooding through at one time and my phone sounded like it was going to explode I had, I don't remember exactly how many, 20 plus various messages, all pertain to one thing. uh, Shortly after our plane had taken off, my wife began to have these neurological episodes um, in the front part of her brain that resembled these really weird kind of aura seizures out of body experience. She had had one before, and we hadn't really thought much about it, kind of watched it, but as soon as we got on the plane, they didn't stop. Like, the brain just kind of broke, Um, and she ended up in the hospital. And so all these texts are everybody alerting me, like, you know, letting me know what was going on. This is what's happening. These haven't stopped. She's in the hospital. Here's a picture of her with wires coming off of her head. Um, they're looking for this. They're looking for this. They think it might be this. And then it stops because the time change and the, the difference in time, you know, is I'm not getting these updates. So Jude and I are just standing there in the concourse, we're reading these messages. We pray, our, our hearts are in our stomach and we're trying to figure out Well, do we just stay in the airport because we might be trying to get back on a plane, back to the States? How do we get through customs to get right back around? You know, it's a tricky thing. Or do we go find the hotel that was nearby, try to get some sleep because I can't get in touch with anybody right now. The time change is too much. I can't find out what's going on. And and so a number of hours go by, and I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it felt like forever. Like if you've ever had to be in a situation where you have been... Anxious, I guess, is the right word for news about someone that you love that you can't talk to, see you can't control the outcome, you can't do anything. You just have to sit and wait, and you feel helpless. It's a horrible feeling. Um, and so, about six, eight hours—I don't know—I don't remember how long it was. Later, when we got the news that you know they were going to continue monitoring what was going on, you know they sent her home with all those wires strapped to her head. Um, And she got a chance to send us a message to tell us that we needed to stay and go about finishing what we had come to do and not try to rush back home. And we didn't even get a chance to talk to her right at the moment, but we got to know that for the best that we could tell, she was okay. That people were caring for her, loving for her. She was at home and they're going to keep watching and we should keep going on. That relief, when you hear that news, of what was a better report than what the worst could have been I can still feel it like there's a, a tangible sense of um, relief is probably the closest word but it sees, seems empty in relation to it but you know when that anxiety and that pressure and that weight is lifted and you can feel it come through I can still think about the moment I still have the picture on my phone I can see it and still feel both of those feelings and I was reminded of all of that, not just because that conference is coming up again this November, but because as we go through this letter that Paul has written to the church in Thessalonica, he is experiencing the same kind of waves in in a very spiritual but very real way. Uh, If you remember, you've been with us through this story. Uh, Paul had spent a very short time in Thessalonica where he was preaching the gospel and people were getting saved, and then all of a sudden, Religious leaders in town got angry about it and stirred up a mob and, and claimed he was you know, proclaiming treasonous statements, and they had to get him out of town for his own safety. And the people that were mad at him in Thessalonica followed him to the next town. So even in Berea, they started harassing him. So he had to get out of there, and he, and he ends up in, in Athens. And on his mind and on his heart are these people that he had come to love who... God had rescued and saved, and he knew the context and the climate that they were in, and his heart was just overcome and and overwhelmed with concern for their well-being. Were they still standing firm in their confidence in Jesus as all the pressures kept getting hotter and hotter and rising higher and higher? When the threat to their social standing, their reputation, their physical well-being was threatened, many of which were actually succumbing to those things, were they still following Jesus? Did they really still believe that he was worth it? That he was better? Had they turned on Jesus and on one another in the midst of all the difficulty? Paul was sitting there in Athens concerned for their well-being, not able to, to know what was going on, which is why he sent Timothy. And Timothy went to check on them. And Timothy brought back a report about how they were doing. That report is what gave rise to this letter that Paul is writing. And it's that report that we pick up on as we look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning, where Paul tells them in this letter now that Timothy had come from them. Verse 6, And he had brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported to us that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Right? So here is Paul telling them that when Timothy came back from them, which they knew he was with them because this is where the report comes from, when Timothy came back and brought this good news which is a term you should be familiar with. It's the same term we translate gospel. A very familiar term to them in that day. A term talking about a particular instance that brought ramifications on the way people live, this announcement of great import. That's how Paul felt about this report, about their well-being from Timothy. It was good news. And there were three things that were so encouraging to Paul. Paul. The first was that their faith is still strong, right? They're still standing confident in Jesus. But amidst all the affliction that Paul has talked about, all the pressures that have been rising, all the temptations that have been present, they haven't been moved. Their faith hasn't been shipwrecked. To them, Jesus is still strong worth it and not only has their faith not been shipwrecked but they haven't been divided by satan and his schemes you know their love is still evident right? the opposition that they have faced the things that have come in seeking to to tear them apart to shipwreck their confidence in jesus and what god is doing Things that would tempt them then to turn inward and become self-focused and self-consumed and self-preserving and self-centered. It hasn't happened. They haven't split up and torn themselves apart from the inside. As Paul has already said, their labors of love are so evident that when he goes to another town, remember chapter one, other places tell him about them. It's had this news that, that Paul is so encouraged. Right, it's some of the best news you could ever hear about someone you love, right? Parents, those of you here in particular who have sent a child or children off to college, you know that this could be some of the best news that you could ever hear. Their faith is still firm in Jesus. They haven't been moved or shipwrecked. Their love for Jesus and his people, it's still strong and it's still evident, right? Right? like this church. They're not perfect. There's still things that we have to grow in. There's still things we have to work on. And in fact, chapters 4 and 5 are going to be Paul's instruction about these particular things. But in the midst of the pressure, in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the temptation, they're still standing firm and their love is still evident. And not only that, they're memories of Paul. They're memories of Timothy. They're memories of Silas. They they haven't been tainted or corrupted by the rumors and the slander that's been going around right they haven't given in to the picture that those who are opposing paul and the gospel have been trying to paint about him and his motives they've been trying to get these people to see that he's some kind of charlatan that he doesn't love them he doesn't care about them as soon as it was best for him he got out of town and he hasn't come back hadn't thought about them since and this report comes back and says you no know, They still long to see you as much as you long to see them, Paul. And when they think about us, they remember us kindly. It would be real easy to kind of move past this quickly, but I think it would be to our own detriment if we did. Because when you think about what Timothy brought back in this report that has caused this kind of relief, and we'll see in just a minute gratitude to wash over Paul, you're reminded that in the life of God's people, none of these three things is automatic. None of them is simply a given, right? Deepening confidence in Jesus in the midst of any kind of pressure, any kind of persecution, any kind of threat of reputation or social standing, it's not a given that you're just going to stand and remain confident in Jesus, believing and knowing in your heart that he's better. When those temptations come and those threats arise, it's not a given that your love and your sacrifice for your brother and sister in Christ is going to continue to abound and grow. The most natural thing in the midst of that kind of pressure and temptation and persecution, if you're just honest, is to turn back on yourself and be self-preserving. Self-focused, self-centered. Right? It's the most natural thing for them to give in to the whispers and the slander that Paul doesn't care, he didn't care, and he was just using them for his own benefit, right? That kind of reaction was happening in other churches, and Paul addresses it in other letters, but it wasn't happening in this one. This report came back, and Paul called it "Good news," because they're standing firm enjoying Jesus. And he's so relieved. And as I think about the story I was telling you at the beginning, I feel like I can kind of imagine a little bit of what Paul was feeling. What it was like to get this report back about someone, a group of people that he loved so much. And to find out their faith is still strong. Their love is still evident. And their thoughts of him and the team and the gospel are still kind and desirous to see again. It's why, in verse 7, Paul says, for this reason, right, for this reason, brothers, that good report, those things that Timothy brought back, for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith, right? Paul's saying, look, affliction and distress hasn't left me, right? They followed Paul from Thessalonica to the next town. Everywhere Paul goes, affliction awaits him. Everywhere he goes, pressure awaits him. It's not like he left and things got easier. But what he's saying is, when I heard this news of your joy in Jesus, the steadfastness of your faith, the evidence of your love, even though I was being afflicted and in distress, so much so that I was left alone in Athens to send Timothy back to find out about you. I was all by myself, but I heard about you. And I heard about what God was doing in your heart I heard about the evidence of his grace in your life. And my own heart was comforted. Boy, this news came at a sweet time for Paul. And the news of their spiritual well-being encouraged his spiritual well-being. Which is why he says in verse 8, for now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. Right, Paul's not talking about biologically living. He's not saying all of a sudden I'm going to drop dead if I find out that your faith is shipwrecked. No, he's talking about spiritually speaking. For now, I live. My joy, my delight, my confidence, my hope, my own spiritual enjoyment and delight in Jesus is alive. It's growing. It's deepening. The report about what God was doing in their life was like spiritual defibrillators to Paul. Right? It's as though he felt like his own heart might have been weighed down under the weight of not knowing how they were doing. Loving them so deeply, loving them so much. So centered was his heart on the glory of God and the work of God and the lives of people that he loved that when that report came back, it was like he got a shock to the heart. It brought courage and encouragement and comfort and delight. That's what Paul is saying. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's this picture of a gospel interdependence that's born amongst the family of God's people. News of this church's faithfulness to Jesus has served his own delight and joy because his delight, his joy was in Jesus and in Jesus' work and the lives of people that he loved. That's what Paul is showing us. And God's people are bound together in this kind of interdependence by the grace of God. And just think about how encouraged they would be to hear that Paul, of all people, Paul, has heard about their steadfastness and their love and what God has been doing in their life. And they hear that that has brought Paul comfort and encouragement. So Paul's joy and delight is strengthened and encouraged and deepened to hear about what God's doing in their life. And when they hear that that's the response of Paul, their own comfort, their own faith, their own confidence in Jesus is encouraged. That's the interdependence that God has established amongst his people by the gospel. And so as I thought about this and paused for just a second to be honest with myself and thought maybe we should be a little honest with ourselves, I You know, I had to ask myself the question that I'll ask you now. It's that, do we share Paul's delight in God's work in our brother and sister's lives? Right, is your delight, your joy, is my delight and my joy truly tied up in Jesus and in his work in your life? Could I say with Paul that now I live as I see and I hear of Jesus' work in your heart, and your life, your confidence in him strengthening, your love for his people overflowing. Is that really true of you? Is it really true of me? Right? Notice that Paul wasn't saying that his delight and his joy, in this sense spiritually, was tied up in himself right? In his own growth, in his own confidence, in his own expressions of love, right? But if you and I were to be honest with ourselves and say, well, I think my delight and my joy is tied up in Jesus and me, well, it won't be a far stretch to find that when something comes up and threatens that delight and threatens that joy that we might find ourselves a little bit discouraged. Or if we're really honest and say that the delight and the joy of my heart is actually tied up in some type of secret sin or something that has captured my heart and my life. It wouldn't be surprising to find out then that when you see God's grace at work in the life of another brother and sister in the church, but they are not the same today as they were last week. You can see the evidence. It wouldn't be surprising to say that you might find yourself feeling a little bit guilty. Not just discouraged, but feeling guilty about yourself. You see, as we listen to the Apostle Paul, we we watch what's going on, the gospel at work in his heart spilling out in this letter. We're we're beginning to see that the key to not losing our delight and our joy in Jesus and the key to not losing our delight and our joy in his work in other people's lives, even when trouble persists, is to make sure with all that we can that it's anchored exactly where it's supposed to be. That we set our delight in the Lord and in His work in the hearts and lives of other people. Because if that is where our joy and delight is found, if that is truly what would cause us to say, like Paul, at the news of God's grace in someone else's life, now I can actually live, I can feel it, then when the threat to the reputation comes for following Jesus, When the threat to the livelihood comes for living according to God's word, when like for many here, the the threat even bodily, relationally may come for for loving Jesus above everything else, all those things may happen and all those things may be taken, but it can't take your joy. It can't take your delight. Why? Why? Because those things are anchored in Jesus and his work in the lives of his people. Not in your own experience. Not in your own circumstance. Paul's like, I'm still in the midst of distress. I'm still in the midst of affliction. They're still trying to kill me. They're still whipping me. They're still beating me. They're still imprisoning me. I'm still having to flee at times from my own life, but I hear about what God's doing in you. and Man, you can't take that joy. You can't take that delight from me. Friends, this is a, a gospel interdependence and a, a gospel dynamic that, that God gives life to in a healthy church. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about how the church in our own day and our own culture has a tendency to take on the consumer mentality of the time in which we live, right? All around us in 10,000 different ways. We're bombarded with the message that our life is meant to be lived and, finding the ultimate expression of our own individuality and tastes and desires right we're supposed to fulfill ourselves in any way shape form or fashion and anything that gets in our way well let it be damned we carry that same kind of consumer orientation that the world is bombarding us with we carry it right into the life amongst God's people in the church right and all of a sudden our relationships in the church become all about ourselves all about me all about how my gifts can get expressed, my opportunities can be received. My personal relationship with Jesus is either established, strengthened, or not. And if I find myself in a community of God's people where those things aren't happening according to the way that I want, that's cool, I'll just go find another one. And we'll Goldilocks it, right? Until we find the one at the right time that does exactly what we want the way we want for me. But the picture that the Bible consistently paints of The lives of God's people is one of an interdependence that Paul portrays for us here. It's a completely different kind of posture, a completely different kind of orientation in heart. The church is God's adopted children, a family that is learning by the grace of God how to live and to love and to encourage one another, always eagerly looking for ways and opportunities to establish, further strengthen, and deepen one another's delight and enjoyment in Jesus. Ways and opportunities when one of us stumbles and falls to pick one another back up and help reorient the focus of our heart and eyes to who Jesus continues to be for us and our satisfaction in him. The orientation is completely different. It actually isn't about me. It's about you. It's about how I can be a part of helping you enjoy Jesus more. Right, if our delight is in ourselves... We said this a few weeks ago. If my delight is truly tied up in me, then you can only really be seen through the lens of how you serve that delight. You become a means that I can use to my own ends, right? But if my delight and joy is anchored in Jesus and his work in your life, your deepening enjoyment of him, your deepening delight in him, the strengthening of your confidence in him and his promises, you know what happens? when that becomes the, the, the place where my delight and joy is anchored, when my preferences for something get threatened, right? And that happens in the church. When my preferences for something get threatened, it is so easy now for me to put those things aside, no factor because my joy and delight aren't tied up into me and what I want happening the way I want. It's in Jesus and him working to increase your joy in him. What I want and the way I want it can be set aside easy, no factor at all, because my delight isn't found in those things happening the way I want. It's not about me. It's about him and your enjoyment in him and your confidence in him. This is a picture that we see in the life of the Apostle Paul of this kind of gospel interdependence, right? And it's not unique to Paul. This didn't just happen with Paul. This is a portrait of wise living the Bible paints throughout the entire Scripture. In fact, I love the picture that's painted in Proverbs 11.30. I'll just read it for you real quick. It says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. The fruit of the righteous. So you and I on this side of the cross, having been made righteous by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, his righteousness imputed, given to us, covering us. The fruit of the righteous is to be a tree of life. It's a picture. I mean, it goes back to the garden. It goes forward to his return, but it's a picture. The fruit of our life, the manner of our living, the way that we live it is meant to serve as a source of nourishment for others that they're to somehow eat of our life and be strengthened in Jesus, more confident in Jesus. They're to see Jesus and love Jesus. They're to find stability and satisfaction and security in him as they eat the fruit of our life. And then wisdom says that Whoever captures souls is wise. The original translation is actually whoever wars after souls. I like that one better. Whoever fights for souls is wise. So it's not just that people are meant to come and experience the grace of God through you, but that you and I are meant to go and war after, fight for the well-being of one another's souls. The deepening confidence in Jesus and his promises. The expanding joy and delight that our hearts have in who Jesus continues to be for us. It's about a proactivity in our lives for one another's joy, right? So even in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature, wise living says that my life isn't about me. That whole picture says my life ultimately isn't about me. And God's people don't just exist for me. But because of the gospel, as God puts us together, my life is for you. And as my hope and joy is tied up in Jesus and your deepening delight in Jesus and confidence in Jesus, my joy and delight grows. It's a radically different orientation than the orientation of the world in which we find ourselves in. And we see it in Paul. For Paul, his delight was in the maturation and the encouragement and the delight in Jesus of this church. That's why in verse 10, we'll just kind of jump, why in verse 10, he's still so eager to see them face to face and supply what's lacking in their faith. Right? He's not saying that their faith was somehow bad or defective. He's just saying that there's more for them to understand about what it is to follow Jesus. Right, he was only with them for a short period of time. There's so much more that he wants to share with them to strengthen their confidence in Jesus, to deepen their enjoyment of Jesus. He, it's what he wants for them more than anything. He wants to be with them because he loves them, because he wants to war. He wants to fight for their soul, for their delight in Jesus, for their faith, Right? He'll get to the instruction later, but he wants to be with them for their joy. This is the dynamic that God establishes amongst his people. This is what a church looks like as it's getting more healthy. Don Carson, and he, he'd say it this way, and just listen. And he, if it feels like he's talking to you, he might, but he doesn't know you. But Carson said, in any Christian view of life, self-fulfillment must never be permitted to become the controlling issue. We could stop there, but we'll keep going. The issue is service. And when he says service, he's actually talking about what Paul is talking about, about seeing the church face to face, encouraging their faith, deepening their love. He's talking about what the wisdom literature would say about warring for one another's souls. That's what he's talking about. He he says the, the issue is service, the service of real people, right? One another's joy. The question is, how can I be most useful The question is not, how can I feel most useful? Do you catch the distinction, right? He's not done. He said, the goal is, how can I best glorify God by serving his people, not how can I feel the most comfortable and appreciated in finding ways to serve God's people? The assumption behind this is, he says, how shall the Christian service to which God calls me be enhanced by my own daily death to myself? By my own principled commitment to take up my cross daily and die. Not, how shall the form of service I am considering enhance me and how I feel about myself. And that's so exactly what we see pouring out of the heart of the Apostle Paul as he thinks about this church. And I can tell you, we don't have enough time to go through it all, but, but we see this kind of delight in Jesus and in the desire for others in the church to delight in Him, evidenced in 10,000 different ways in the way that you and I, you guys love one another, right? For many of you, as you take time during your week to take the lessons for RH kids and to pour over them, to understand them, to take them in, to think, how am I going to communicate this to the kids in a way that they'll understand to prepare for that? Lots of other things you could have been doing. But your delight is tied up in their ongoing deepening understanding and hope enjoyment in Jesus. Core teams, as you take time during the week to prepare for that time together, as you pray for those that are going to be gathered, as you consider how you're going to spend that time, as you consider how you're going to prepare for the environment, as you think about all those different things, you're, you're doing that so that as you come together and God does the work when you're together, one another's joy and delight in him will be strengthened and deepened. Right at times as we walk out of here, I'll walk out of here sometimes and I'll see three or four of you somewhere off to the side praying together. Taking time to have shared what was going on in one another's hearts and out of a desire to see confidence and enjoyment in Jesus deep and you're there praying for one another in the midst of something. As you're taking time during the week when you, when you could be doing something else and you're preparing food or, or taking care of someone's kids for someone else that you love who's going through a difficult time and you're there to encourage them that, that God's people are with them and that God's people are for them and that we're here for you. It, we see it in 10,000 different ways. And so, as much as I can say it, let Paul's example be an encouragement to keep going. Keep going, right? What if we ask God to embolden us to be a people that was ever on the lookout and, and growing in eagerness to wage war for one another's souls and deepening enjoyment in Jesus, right? But as much as we, we see the evidence and can only but give thanks to God for what we see at work in your lives, it's always good to ask the question of our own hearts at any given time, where does our joy and delight really lie? What's it really tethered to? Because if we're honest, it it shifts more often than we want to admit. And so one of the best ways to discern where our delight and joy is, one of the best evidences or proofs for where it is, is how we respond to what God is doing in the lives of someone else. When God is working powerfully in the life of someone else, and you can see it, there's evidence at work and it could be any number of things how do you respond what goes on in your heart what's that first instinct right in verse 9 for paul we can see what was going on for him for what thanksgiving can we return to god for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our god as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith Right, for Paul, he gets this good report. He hears the news, right? He's been anxious about what was going on in them and he gets the good report and he can't seem to find the words, or the ways to thank God enough for the joy of being a part of what he's doing in their lives. Gratitude just spilling out. And for those of you that are keeping track of this, this is his third outburst of gratitude like this in the letter so far. And we're only in the third chapter. Like every time he talks about something, he can't help but just let the gratitude spill out. And how encouraging would that that have been to them to even hear it, right? But think about it, if you're just honest with yourself, as you see or you hear about God... Growing, the faith of someone else deepening, their love for Jesus being evident in their lives, maybe even in the conversation that they have, the change in the way they talk, the, the changes they're making in their life, how they're living differently now. They, they've been convicted by something, they've repented of something. Now they're walking in a different way as they follow Jesus, and you see it and you know because God's been at work in them. What, what goes on in your heart? If we're really honest, sometimes the first thing we feel isn't this overwhelming sense of gratitude to God for His work in their life, it's a little bit of envy. We're not careful, it can be a little bit of anger. Jealousy, bitterness. Friends, all these responses apart from thanksgiving to God for his work in your brother and your sister's life are, are like a, a light on the dashboard of your car that's going on in your heart, right? Something's not right. Your delight, your joy are, are being anchored or are tethered to something else. It's being misplaced. It's a warning from the grace of God. It is Holy Spirit at work in you, showing you. Hold on a second. We need to take note of this, right? Paul hears this report of what God is doing, and man, I can't even come up with the words to express the gratitude I have for what you're doing in their life and the joy that I get from being a part of it. And as he lets them know, he he tells them he's gonna pray for them. And he doesn't just tell them he's going to pray for them. He then does it, right? That's a whole lesson in itself. The prayer is short. That's a lesson in itself. It's potent and it's passionate, right? As I read it this week, I thought about this old quote from John Newton who who said, short, frequent, fervent petitions are best suited to the case in every case. You need not add to the burden by tasking yourself beyond your power as if you were expected to be heard for your much speaking. Short, I'll learn the lesson at some point. Brief, maybe by the time God takes me home. But passionate. And this prayer that we're going to hear Paul pray, is a prayer that reinforces his affection for these people and at the same time sets up the instruction that he's going to give them in the rest of the letter. And I just want us to hear it and consider what he's saying here at the time we've got left. Paul says in verse 11, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Simple. Paul knows, and he's already talked about how the enemy has been at work, hindering his return to them. He wants to be with them to war for their joy. He wants to be with them so he can continue to establish and strengthen their confidence in Jesus. But remember, Satan has hindered his path. He, he took that military picture and Satan has destroyed. He's torn up. He's, he's blown up the access road back to where he's going. Paul knows there's opposition. And so he simply prays, God, repave the road. That's what he's asking, simple. Repave the road. Simple, but Not simplistic, right? That's a helpful reminder. I know it is for me, right? That even the most simple of things are still things that can lead to the bearing of fruit in the lives of others. So don't hesitate to ask, right? God, would you allow our schedules to work out this week so that we can meet when you have set a lunch up to encourage someone in the gospel and in Jesus, and you just pray that the schedules work out. That's simple, but it's not simplistic. Pray that all the preparations needed as you open up your home to maybe invite one of your neighbors or uh, someone new to the church over for an evening or for a meal, pray that the schedules and all the details work out so that you can open up your home and your life to them free of any kind of impatience and, and frustration. Just simple The details work. It matters. Right? That families remain well because you've scheduled a time to get together for a play date with some of your youngest kids and you know that one thing that keeps all those things apart is somebody getting sick. Pray that that God bring health to those things so that you can have time together to encourage one another and their confidence and joy in Jesus. It's simple, but it's not simplistic. I think sometimes we get caught up. I know I do. Maybe I should speak for myself. I can get caught up thinking that those things are beneath God. Right? It's easy to think he, he doesn't want to be bothered with those things. Right? But this is a reminder that sometimes even the most simple things are things that then make the way and lead towards long-term spiritual well-being and joy in the lives of others. So, so ask. So pray. Repave the road. Right? And then he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, right? Not just may your love increase, but may your love literally abound beyond limit, exceedingly great, overflow constraints and barriers, right? For one another, right? I've already seen your labors of love for one another. Now may God do work in you to take that love and cause it to overflow beyond any kind of container that would try to hold it in. Right? Because Jesus has already told us, Paul might remind them if he was with them, that it's our love for one another that will signal to a world around us that we really are his. You're loving one another well. Keep loving one another well. Now, God, make this love just overflow for each other. The sacrifices it requires, the setting aside of preferences that it requires, make it overflow for one another and for all, right? Not just those within the body of Christ, but for all. Even those, maybe even in their time, who are actively seeking to persecute you. Actively seeking to threaten your well-being. Actively seeking to threaten your reputation, your relationships. May your love overflow beyond all exceeding boundary and limit for your enemies and your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm already cutting close on time. That's a whole sermon in itself, especially in today's climate, especially in the news stories of today's church, right? A church that loves well, reflects well on the gospel. And only those whose delight in the gospel and the promises of God being changed by the gospel can love this way. It works like this. So Paul prays. That their love would abound so that, verse 13, same part of the same prayer, verse 13, so that, right, here's the purpose, God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. So he's thinking about their holiness and Jesus' return. He's thinking about their confidence and their faith in Jesus giving rise to their holiness, looking forward to the day that Jesus returns, Right? This is where all that we've seen Paul kind of express so far in these verses kind of comes to a head in the prayer. He's so excited to hear about the steadfastness of their faith. God's continuing to work and establish in them what he had begun when he proclaimed the gospel to them because Paul knows that none of us are born blameless and holy. None of us are born naturally blameless before God and holy. We have to be born again right? And this was the message that Paul had proclaimed to them and that they had received and they had taken in and believed and had begun to reshape their entire life. Paul had come and declared that when God, the son took on flesh, he didn't do it as an example for them to follow. Like here's your example do the best you can to follow him. For those who do it well enough, God might like you, right? No, Paul proclaimed to them that he, took on this flesh, and he lived a life blameless and holy before God, the very life that God had intended for us to live, but we haven't lived. And then Jesus willingly gave his life for us as a substitute and a sacrifice, and on the cross, he suffered in our place the judgment that our unholy and blame-filled lives deserved. And that his sacrifice was acceptable and pleasing to God the Father on our behalf because three days later, he left that tomb alive with resurrection life. And the promise that his resurrection life holds out, the promise that Jesus held out to all that were with him when he was here, the promise that Paul then proclaims and holds out and we hold out even today as we go through his word is that if you will but turn from your sin and trust in his life and death and resurrection in your place, he will forgive your sin. He took it. He took it upon himself on the cross. He will not just forgive that sin. He will then give you his blameless and holy life. His blamelessness, his holiness, exchange for your sinfulness. That's the promise of the good news that Paul had proclaimed to this church that they had heard and God had given them ears to hear and they received and they took it in and they trusted it and they believed in it and it's changed everything about them. It's the same good news that God is calling you to trust this morning. He's just doing it through his word and his Holy Spirit and me, not Paul. Holy and blameless is the promise being held out. This is why Paul was so relieved and so excited, comforted, and overjoyed when he got the news about their faith and their love. See, when you delight in something and you're tethered to that thing, the way Paul was tethered to Jesus and his work and the lives and the hearts of God's people. When your delight is tethered to something, you want more of it. And so Paul hears the report of the steadfastness of their faith and the expansion of their love and all he can think to do is thank God for the work and then ask God to do more. We want more of it cause it to overflow, cause it to abound, cause it to, to drive deeper into their hearts for their confidence to become tempered like steel. More of this, God, work in their hearts so that on that day they've received you, they'll stand before you blameless and holy, but the way these words carry this picture here in this verse is that we will continue to see expression of that up to that day. So bring more. More. Bring more, God. Let me just say this as we, we read it. You and I can't improve on this prayer, right? This is a divinely inspired, divinely preserved prayer. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Make this prayer your prayer for this church this year. Right, Tim's already said, we start our year in September, so this is kind of the start of a year. Will you make this prayer your prayer for this church this year? Right, you don't have to wonder, how do I pray a a theologically rich, potent, and passionate prayer for Redemption Hill and for the hearts and lives of God's people? It's right here. No need to be creative, no need to be innovative, no need to stumble around for more words, nope. Just receive this prayer as God's gift for one another's joy this year. And if you're willing to do it, if you're you're willing to do that this year to allow this prayer to shape your prayers for this church, just be ready to be part of God's answer, right? For our faith to deepen for our love to expand, to be ready for God to use you in one another's lives to bring that about. May this portrait of gospel-rich interdependence, may it really be truer of us in a year than it is right now. What might God do amongst the people willing To own this prayer as his gift to us for our joy. Let's try and see. Let me pray for us as we prepare to respond to God's word this morning. God, unless you change our hearts, we're going to settle for so much less. So we ask this morning that you would establish our hearts Deeper and deeper, our confidence deeper and deeper, stronger and stronger in who you are and your faithfulness to us. Establish our hearts or expand our love for one another in the place where you've put us. Expand our love for the church. Expand our love for this city. Like this church in Thessalonica, may it become evident May our love for you and for one another and for your people become clear. May it be a beacon for this city to know that these people are yours. And I want to get in on what I see. How can I get in on what I see? Lord, we ask that you would do this. It's only by a work, a supernatural work of your spirit and your grace in our hearts for this to be a reality. So we ask that you would do what only you could do in Jesus' good name. Amen.